like how do you read Tolkien's struggles with viewing mortality as natural? Is that a part of him wrestling with his own modern outlook? Or is it him incorporating pre-Christian, sub-Christian ideas into his framework, right? Like, is it the sort of paganism, the, the, the Norse literature that he's reading that's doing this sort of thing for him? Or is it just he's, he's a man of his times, and so when he looks at death, he's like, well, mortality must be natural. Uh, actually, I don't think it's either of those, uh, surprisingly. Are orcs heretical? Does Middle-earth have the Holy Spirit? How can we think about theology through myth, and specifically through the myths constructed by J.R.R. Tolkien? My name is Matthew Lee Anderson, and you are listening to Mere Fidelity, the podcast where we think together about the Word of God and the world we live in. I'm joined by my fellow American Derek and our newly nationally confused Alistair, who is British by origin, American by inheritance. I am very excited to be talking about theology and literature today, which is something I've wanted to do ever since we started this podcast, but it finally comes to fruition. Thanks to our friends at Lexham Press for sponsoring this episode of Mere Fidelity. They have published the book we are going to talk about today, which you can get for probably 24 more hours at lexampress.com slash merefidelity where you can get all the Lexham Press Mere Fidelity books of the month, but especially this one, Tolkien Dogmatics, Theology Through Mythology with the Maker of Middle-Earth. We've been pubbing this book for a while now. It's very well written. Written by Austin Freeman, who is our guest. Austin is a systematic theologian and an instructor at Houston Christian University, which is formerly known as Houston Baptist University. He's the author of this book. And Austin, I am delighted to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you guys for having me. All right, so Derek and Alistair, I'm just going to warn you, I've got questions. We know, like, literature is my thing. I'm just so excited to be thinking about literature. Austin, you wrote a systematic theology through a world that is entirely imaginary. Talk us through the process of doing that. What are the benefits of thinking about systematic theology through a literary context? And what are the dangers? Um, yeah, so I, I want to just tweak what you said just a bit. Um, the, the book is about Tolkien as a theologian. Um, there are quite a lot of existing books about uh, the theology of Middle Earth or about spiritual themes in Middle Earth. Uh, what have you, but there wasn't really any book on the market of a quite prodigious Tolkien scholarship. There's there's a lot more than many people probably would expect, but there wasn't any book dealing with Tolkien as a theological thinker himself. And so the, the reason why I decided to write this book was to view Tolkien not just as a literary creator, but as a thinker. And so the book is a systematics in regards to what, what Tolkien himself would have written if he were to be a systematic theologian. So it doesn't just cover Middle-earth, it covers um, his letters, it covers his Oxford lectures, it covers his uh, work in Old English, 
Uh, pretty much anything that Tolkien published finds its way into the book somewhere. Uh, and so it's it's synthetic in in the way that Tolkien uses his literature as a mouthpiece to express particular theological ideas, but it is not solely confined to the world of Middle-earth. I mean, I, I think when a lot of people hear about the book, they just assume that I'm writing something that's about an imaginary world. Uh, but the, the, the thrust of the book isn't about the imaginary world in so much as it is about how the imaginary world allows Tolkien to talk about theological issues that he wouldn't otherwise be able to. Good. So that's helpful. Um, I, I, I actually did get that from the book, but obviously Middle Earth is the bulk of Tolkien's writing. I mean, it's the main thing that he does. It's the thing he's known for. And so it plays a disproportionate role, even within your book, in, in my impression, in terms of setting out how Tolkien thinks as a theologian. So I guess I wonder, like, what do you think like Middle Earth does that's unique for Tolkien as a theologian, right? Like what, what what's distinctive? You're thinking about him as a theologian. He's weird as a theologian in that he does write in this mode that no other theologians tend to write in. Um, and so what, what do you think adds to Tolkien's theological imagination uh, from that process of writing Middle Earth? Uh, if, if we think about Tolkien and his theological contribution in general, it really devolves into a few distinct loci. That I mean, there are there are some loci where he sort of treads the normal path, and there are a few where he gets a little bit more creative. And so, some of the doctrines that we find Tolkien actually um, being helpful to to standard theologians, people that are not writing fantasy literature, um, is doctrine of creation, uh, angelology. Uh, things like that. And so th that's also where we find Tolkien at his best in terms of how he's working with the with the Middle-earth literature. So, for instance, the fact that Tolkien is able to populate his realm with angels who can become embodied or with uh, demons who are able to show up visibly, uh, these are ways that Tolkien can make it easier for us to discuss these concepts and actually takes us a lot further back towards the original mindset, the original worldview of the biblical authors. I mean, and there's a there's a section in my book at the beginning of the chapter on angelology where I say this is uh, quite similar to the ancient Near Eastern divine council worldview. And so the the idea that there are these sort of angelic governors that are overseeing creation is something that is not it's it, it's not something that we see um, very frequently, at least in more recent systematics, or at least not in the the reformed systematics that most of us are reading. Um, and so that that's one way in which Tolkien is able to make these concepts more visible. And in fact, he says explicitly that that's what he's doing, uh, is that he creates this world in order to instantiate and embody particular ideas more clearly. And that's really the that's really the benefit of fantasy literature in general. Shout out to Karl Barth for writing about uh angels yes. and demons. So that's just for Derek's benefit. I mean, you, you threw reformed systematic theologians under the bus there, but Bart's got a whole treatment of angels and demons. So, um, but know. not in the traditional sense, right? So Bart, Bart is doing something different with what he thinks angels and demons are, um, than, than Tolkien is, or than the, the older systematicians are. I mean, like Bart doesn't think angels are the same sort of things that Bob Ake does. Yeah. <laughs> that's fair. That is fair. I, Yeah. 
I, I appreciate, I will accept that qualification or that correction. So, I mean, fantasy literature in general allows us to really press on the boundaries of what is possible. Um, and it, it gives us the ability to talk about things which can otherwise go undetected. So for instance, the other, when you originally asked this question, the first thing I thought of was Tolkien's doctrine of humanity, his anthropology. Um, and the fact of the matter is Tolkien has all sorts of different sentient races in middle earth from ants to elves, to dwarves, to eagles, all these sorts of things. Um, but all of them are facets of this one concept of the humane. And that's the word that he uses. Uh, so when we talk about ants or elves or any of these other races, what we're actually talking about is different aspects of what humanity means to Tolkien. And he's able to sort of exaggerate them and blow them up so that we can examine them more carefully. Hmm. What's the downside risk there? Because it seems like you just made a great argument for Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness, mm -hmm. which is all about angels and demons, right? Like he's brought them to life. and, mm -hmm. and But in ways that little Matt, you know, reading that when he was in middle school or early high school, got really freaked out and really into all those, those sorts of demonology. Is it just that it's valuable because it's fantasy and it's so disconnected from our world that there's a, a, a distancing that goes on, but you know, like, is that, is that what's safe about it? Because it does seem like Frank Peretti does something that's kind of weird. Well, I mean, I think that it's going to depend on the person. The more you're biblically grounded and, and grounded in the tradition, the safer, I guess, if that's the word we want to use, it is to start talking about these things and start putting them in fantasy forms. I mean, I don't think Frank Peretti is as good of a theological thinker as J.R.R. Tolkien was. Uh, so in, in that sense, Frank Peretti's theologically based literature is not going to be as good. Uh, but again, Tolkien has a a systematics. That's the, one of the reasons why I, I wanted to lay out this book is that he's got something to say about every aspect of, of these traditional loci, and he weaves them together in ways that a systematic theologian would. They're all connected. And that's one of the reasons why we appreciate Middle Earth so much is because it feels like a seamless tapestry. It feels like one solid, unified, integrated thing. And it doesn't sort of blow up one loci, locus to, to be disproportionate uh, and therefore dangerous. Uh, as some other people might. When we're thinking about Tolkien's Middle Earth, it seems to resonate in various ways with Old Europe for Tolkien. And um, there are ways in which it's not disconnected from our world. Can you say a bit more about how you see, as it were, um, sparks flying between the actual world that we inhabit and Tolkien's world? How is he situating his imaginary world relative to the real one? So for those in the audience that may not be as familiar with the sort of deep lore of Middle-earth, uh, Middle-earth is not a separate dimension. It's not a different planet. Middle-earth is our planet in the, the mythical past, in the sort of prehistory past that we remember through our cultural histories and, and through language. And so that's one of the things that Tolkien does that's really interesting is that he doesn't silo off the aspects of his life. His study of Old English and of Indo-European roots and cognates is directly connected to his appreciation for Anglo-Saxon kingship theology and for the Vatican II uh, sacramental theology of the Eucharist. Like All of this connects together for him, and that's why it, it makes him so fascinating. Um, but you're right, Alistair. Middle Earth is supposed to be Europe, uh, and particularly Western Europe, 
uh, in uh, the time of legends and the time of myth. And so he deliberately puts things in to his fiction that uh, are, are things that he finds interesting in his scholarship. Uh, so particular words like ond, there's, there's one word that we knew from Indo-European um, that in, in linguistics and etymology, language follows sound changes and laws. And so you can actually trace it backwards. You can extrapolate backwards to what people would have spoken back in the, the Paleolithic or whatever. Um, and so it, the, the very earliest roots of the languages that we have that would later go on to become English and German and French and Italian and, and all of these things, uh, we have this word ond, which means stone. And Tolkien thought that this was a very nice word. It sounded like a word that should mean stone. Uh, and so he put that in his work as Gondor. And so he he takes his names from his linguistic scholarship. He takes um, particular elements from his wider reading of Romanticism. So he, he's heavily influenced by the Romantic tradition of, of people like uh, Walter Scott or William Morris, um, all of these folks that are also doing the same thing to try to reconstruct a, a Europe that has been lost uh, in the distant past, and even uh, perhaps provocatively, a pre-Christian past, pre-Christian Europe. Uh, so Tolkien is is obviously one of the preeminent scholars of the Old English poem Beowulf. And if you have not, you in the audience have not read Tolkien's uh, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics, or his uh, commentary and notes on Beowulf as a poem, there's actually quite a lot of theology in there. Uh, and, and he gets there through his linguistic work. He starts talking about Old English words for, for demon or shadow, and he moves on to reconstruct this whole thought world that the Anglo-Saxons would have had in this transformation from pre-Christian paganism, where demons are more like monsters, into the Christian world, where demons are primarily a spiritual threat. Uh, and so um, he takes this idea that the, the, where the Beowulf poem is situated is, is at the shift the turning of the tide from pre-Christian into Christian. Um, and that's sort of where I would situate Middle-earth in a sense. It, it looks backwards to the pre-Christian and appreciates um, the pre-Christian world, but metaphysically it is a, it is a Christian world. Um, just to shift slightly to a method question uh, that you might dispense with in about two seconds. Um, a Tolkien dogmatics versus a Tolkien systematics. Is there something in there? Uh, sometimes people make a big difference between the two and sometimes they're just interchangeable. Um, is this more Tolkien as churchly theologian or Tolkien as, um, you know, uh, sometimes people will say, Oh, systematics is my, you know, independent, you know, kind of system, you know, it's Pannenberg's it's whatever, but it's, versus a dogmatic is offered up as the dogma of the church, the teaching of the church. So I, did you were you doing something specific there, or was it like, hey, this is a this is a this is a nicer word. We like it. Dogmatic sounds better. It sounds better, right? You know. Yeah, uh, yeah, it sounds better. It reminds people of Karl Barth. We've already talked okay. about. Yeah, it brands it. Um, no, it. Yeah, it's it's the fact that Tolkien is a very traditional uh, Roman Catholic theologian. There's no debating that. If if we're going to call him a theologian, he's a Roman Catholic one. Um, and so as such, he wants to situate himself within the tradition and within the, the magisterial teaching. And so he wants to deal with the dogmas, right? In, in Catholic theology, dogmas are specific things um, mm -hmm. as opposed to other forms of theology. So that, that's, that's what it is. And I, um, 
yeah, that's that's probably the best answer is the that despite also sounding very good, <laughs> it, it does deal with exactly what you said, that it it situates him as a, an orthodox creedal um, conversating or conversing with the the, the tradition and with uh, other figures. Um, some of them not explicit. Some of them are explicit. Uh, so yeah. in that case, I have a question. Um, you know, you, Austin, I've known you for many years and I've known you to be like working on this, even when you weren't working on this for many, many years, you've delved deep, uh, and I, I haven't awakened any monsters, but you, Hopefully I know not too greedily, too, 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 too deep, greedily, yeah. but, but you've been delving for a long time. You're, 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 you're a dwarf in the lore, uh, in that regard. Um, what, uh, <laughs> what element of, you know, you've got several loci here, what element or two, you know, were most surprising in terms of like, oh, I didn't, I didn't see that little Roman Catholic bit popping up and doing something unique for the storyline that is, uh, you know, you know it, 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 there's, there's the doctrine of God, which is a fairly shared, you know, in a sense, widely Catholic section. Uh, and then we might have some shared elements in Christ. Where I, this is just me just wondering like, hey, how did that doctrine pop up there? And that's uh, that was a really interesting formative effect, his Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic imagination and, and dogmatic uh, confluence mm -hmm. influences. I'll provide a few options. Um, the, the first part of the question is what surprised me the most. There are a few things that surprised me the most that did not have to do necessarily with Roman Catholicism. And the, the two that surprised me were his developing view of death. Um, I think Tolkien is, is famously sort of described as seeing death as a gift, right? The gift of men. But that's not true for the majority of his writing. That his idea of the gift of death is something that he struggles with and develops as he continues on. And as he begins to be more conscious and more cognizant of the theological elements in his writing. And so he actually tries to get out of saying that. Um, the other things have to do with uh, the doctrine of revelation. Um, so obviously doctrine of revelation is going to be one of the big distinctions between Protestant and Roman Catholic theology. And so I was surprised uh, in one sense to see that Tolkien did consider himself to be inspired in some sense, um, not on the level of scripture, but that he was given a particular sort of inspiration by God or through angelic agency, um, a, a sort of uh, sing O muse sort of inspiration, right? Not, not, not anything too spooky, uh, but that God is doing something through Tolkien's writing that Tolkien didn't necessarily intend. Um, and then also in under the locus of revelation, when I was charting out forms of divine revelation that occur in Tolkien's writings, I was pretty surprised to actually go back and count how many times the, the Valar or Eru God communicate with the characters through dreams and visions and uh, tongues and all sorts of supernatural occurrences. I mean, Frodo, it, I mean, this is not anything surprising to people that are familiar with the books, but Frodo has several prophetic dreams uh, throughout the story uh, that, that later come to pass. And it, it's not just relegated to Frodo. This is something that Tolkien uses quite a lot. Uh, and I think this is, this is an element where the Roman Catholicism pops up because we know that uh, a lot of Catholics are, are very happy to to talk about uh, dreams, visions, apparitions, um, ongoing miracles of a smaller sort. Right? No, no parting of the sea, but you know, it might heal my 
might heal my particular illness if I go and visit the uh, particular shrine of so and so. Um, yeah, so the the idea that there are extra biblical forms of divine communication uh, happened quite a lot, uh, and a lot more than I was expecting them to. That one's that one's interesting because if you compare it to Lewis's that hideous strength, I mean, Jane receives dreams about what's going to happen, and part of the drama of that hideous strength is putting together Jane's dreams and as a part of the narrative plot. But I wanted to ask you about the first one, actually, uh, that you mentioned, which is his view of death, because I think this is one of the things that you brought out really nicely in the book and one of the aspects of Tolkien that I'm most interested in. This notion that death is a gift seems to me to be a peculiar modern, peculiarly modern notion. I mean, the, Bart takes this line, and I think Bart is probably one of the most prominent 20th century theologians to take this line, though I think Rahner does as well. Um, and to me, it's it's a, it's a bad view. Like, it's actually a, a real problem. And I was really surprised. I, I had talked with a friend who knows Tolkien really well about this, so I had vague intuitions that Tolkien had this sort of view, at least at points in his life and in his writings, but I hadn't realized how extensive it was. And so I guess what I wonder is, is like, how do you read Tolkien's struggles with viewing mortality as natural? Is that a part of him wrestling with his own modern outlook? Is it, or is it him incorporating pre-Christian, sub-Christian ideas into his framework, right? Like, is it the sort of paganism, the, the, the Norse literature that he's reading that's doing this sort of thing for him? Or is it just he's, he's a man of his times, and so when he looks at death, he's like, well, mortality must be natural. Uh, actually, I don't think it's either of those, uh, surprisingly. Uh, I think it's the scholastics. Um, so like Peter Lombard talks about this, were Adam and Eve mortal or immortal before they ate of the tree of life or had they eaten of the tree of life already? And how would they have lived forever, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, there are medieval Christian theologians who are of the opinion that, um, human beings were made naturally mortal and that immortality would have been a gift that they received later on so that we can say they're immortal in the sense that they would never have died if they would have been obedient, but not in other senses. Um, and so I, I think that's where he's getting it. Um, when he writes about death as a gift, it, it starts up in the, the Ainulindale, right? And, and the Ainulindale is the, the creation myth that starts off the Silmarillion. And that text is basically unchanged from the time when he writes it at the, at the very end of the Great War up until the end of his life. And he sees that text as a sort of foundational, so he doesn't want to tinker with it too much. Um, and, and I think that his his bind, the theological bind that he finds himself in is actually more as a result of his policy towards literature and towards his own writing than it is towards his own dogmatic beliefs. So I, I think that he wants to keep death as a gift in there for the very same reason that he wants to keep Middle Earth as a flat world, because he's published it somewhere and that's sort of established as the canon and he doesn't want to disrupt the integrity of his of his fictional universe. But we see death as a gift to men, and it, it's not death in the sense of uh, biological death is the end of life. When Tolkien says death, what he means is that the soul is immortal and that it will go into eternity eventually. 
Um, that's what he means. So he he never at any point denies the immortality of the soul. What he struggles with is the the idea of existing forever in this world and in the world of time. Because Tolkien, if Tolkien has a problem, I think it's more with time than with death. Um, he sees time as as growing to be oppressive and and as binding us. He wants into that eternal now um, or that freedom from the shackles of time that we will have in in the eschaton. Um, but he also is writing the Silmarillion, again, from the literary angle, he's writing this as not written by human beings, right? In the, in the, um, in the world of the text, the Silmarillion is, is Elvish mythology uh, as translated through the human beings who have sort of found and compiled it. And so the elves have obviously a very different view of death than human beings do. For the elves who are actually more mortal than human beings because human beings have immortal souls and elves only survive uh, to the end of the world they might have a hope of existing after the world but it's not a sure thing to the elves this idea of being able to leave the world and go somewhere else to be with god uh, is uh very appealing to them like in in one of his letters tolkien says that if, if elves had myths it would be probably just as much to do um with the escape from deathlessness as human myths have to do with the escape from death. So that's one of the elements that he's playing with there. Um, but as he begins to see just how much theology seeps into his literature, he starts to grapple with this consciously. And he writes a very rich um, sort of theological dialogue, but uh, the, the debate of Finrod and Andreth, which is in um, the history of Middle Earth. Uh, this is Christopher Tolkien, his son. This is the compilation of his unfinished manuscripts that that he wrote or that he published posthumously after J.R.R. Tolkien died. And in this, we have Finrod, who is Galadriel's brother. And uh, if anybody watched Rings of Power, Finrod is the, the one that she's so upset about. Uh, so we've got Finrod and Andreth, who is this elderly human woman. And they have this debate and conversation about this elvish view of death as a gift and a human view of death as a curse. And the, the sort of medieval synthesis that they come to is that death is a curse, but it can be transformed into a gift if it is accepted with faith, if it is accepted in trust that God will do something good out of it. And that's sort of where he lands uh, in the, the realm of Middle-earth, at least. Uh, outside of Middle-earth, Tolkien personally, Tolkien as, a, as a, uh, an independent thinker, is never at, in, in question that, that death is something that uh, we should uh, aspire to understand or be sympathetic towards. And, and how could it be? I mean, he he was orphaned as a young teenager. He saw most of his friends die in the Great War. And the, the, he suffered all sorts of loss. He knew exactly how harmful and how painful death could be. Um, but in his literature, he's trying to grapple with what comes beyond that and, and with the hope that he has um, in, in through his faith to sort of overcome this problem. Can you say a bit about how you see Tolkien using fantasy theologically relative to other figures such as Lewis or Charles Williams or um, I suppose George MacDonald or even um, Samuel Coleridge? Um, there seem to be a number of figures, a number of whom Tolkien himself was in conversation with, who are also doing similar sorts of things with fantasy. Um, what differentiates Tolkien from them? How is he interacting with that tradition and how does he develop it? Yeah, so Tolkien is a romantic. 
and I, I think that's very clear that the research is beginning to, that's beginning to be a, a, a hot point in Tolkien scholarship. I've got an upcoming chapter on this. Um, but he is of that stream of romantic, the uh, Coleridge and Wordsworth and those sorts of people, definitely not the Byron or the Shelley type. Um, and these people emphasize particular particular things. And, and I would say there is an emphasis that he shares with Coleridge, with MacDonald, with C.S. Lewis on um, sacramental ontology. And I think that you meet God in nature, you meet God in the world, right? Christ plays in 10,000 places. Um, I think that there is an emphasis on medievalism, that he sees uh, the medieval imaginative world, the the discarded image that Lewis writes about. He sees that as a beautiful and a desirable uh, place to be. Uh, there is an emphasis on uh, anti-industrialism, right? All of them share uh, a strong aversion to the mechanization and the instrumentalization of human life. Um, I think they're all optimists. So um, in contrast to many other people of the time, including many other people who write uh, fantasy literature, like you know George R. R. Martin or other people, the, these people have uh, what the, the fantasy theorist Colin Manlove calls it, a, a delight in being, in being as such. Um, so they're just really thrilled that the universe exists. Uh, and and they love it, and they they want to say more about it. And so Tolkien and a few of these other people, the the imagined worlds that they make are not as it is in a lot of contemporary fantasy, a way of critiquing any one particular aspect of of human life. It is instead a way of praising God for the the contingency of reality. Right. God could have done a million different things uh, to create this world. The sky did not have to be blue, but it is. Um, and, and what does that show us about God? It shows us his power and his creativity. And we can praise him by creating other uh, similar worlds and, and displaying some of the other courses that God might have taken in creating ours. So it, it's really sort of a it, it goes back to the creator creature distinction and the the creature giving back to the creator. Um, some of the infinite variety of the creator's own power. Um, those are a few of the commonalities. I mean, Tolkien is uh, appreciative of Coleridge. He's going to flip Coleridge's terms, his distinction between imagination and fancy that Coleridge uses in the Biographia Literaria um, when he goes to write his own on fairy stories. Um, but the gist of it is the same. He's, he's not really disagreeing with Coleridge in substance. He's just disagreeing with the terms that Coleridge is using because Tolkien is a crotchety old um, dictionary writer. Um, uh, with MacDonald, it's more interesting. So he's heavily influenced by George MacDonald, um, despite the fact that as he grows older, he doesn't like MacDonald's fiction. Um, so Smith of Wooten Major, which is one of the last stories that he wrote, is a sort of self-contained uh, fairy tale, began as um, an introduction that he was supposed to write for George MacDonald's The Golden Key, which is, um, for those of you that don't know, it's a short fairy tale about death. And so he starts writing this introduction and he says, um, this is what fairy tales are and uh, this is the sort of elements that they have to have. And in fact, like, here's an example. And then the example sort of takes on the life of its own and becomes its own story. And then he realizes, oh, as I'm rereading The Golden Key, I don't think it's very good. So he 
sort of rejects McDonald as a as a writer, but I don't think he rejects McDonald's philosophy of fantasy literature. George McDonald also has an essay called Fairy Stories in A Dish of Orcs, which is some of his, his essays. And in that essay, he uh, talks about how God means for us to draw the sort of symbols, imaginative symbols, out of creation that we do. So to use the C.S. Lewis as an example, the fact that C.S. Lewis pictures Jesus incarnate in Narnia as a lion because lions have a particular symbolic resonance, that is not an accident. That is something that God intended for us to do. Uh, and that creation has all of these different levels of hidden meaning and hidden symbolism um, that God has has left there for us to find and make use of. And I think that's exactly the same the same approach that Tolkien takes. Austin, does that require the analogy antis? That uh, I'm I don't have a problem with the analogy antis. Okay, I'm just I'm know. just curious for for those yeah. who are listening at home. I like I'm 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 asking whether that view of imagination uh, and of and of fairy stories and how they work out requires some sort of analogy of our being and God's being some sort of tie or bond between them such that we can make this sort of derivations. I mean, it, it would be, it would be consistent. It would be consistent with his doctrine of creation and especially his Roman Catholic doctrine of creation. Uh, like I, it's not something, it's not the kind of thing that I would imagine he'd be um, antsy about in the way that uh, like a 20th That's century right. Protestant might. Um, so, I mean, and, so and, I, and I'm not asking yeah. it as, as like, the analogy antius is bad. Yeah, no, no. I'm just curious whether it requires it, and and what you would make of that for Protestants who are writing, and what sort of imaginative capacity they have. I mean, there have been disputes online in the last five years over the Protestant imagination and whether there is one. Why are there no Protestant novelists? Those sorts of things. Um, do you do you see? that sort of doctrinal structure as specifically fueling this type of imaginative work in Tolkien's case? Uh, I, I don't know how far I'd go into the differences between Protestant and Roman Catholic novelists, but I, I think for Tolkien, there is an analogy in this, um, and, and there is in some sense, in some sense, a chain of being or at least an order <laughs> it's of being. Yeah. Um, Carl, so Bart's Tolkien, why, Carl Bart's why evangelicals but, can't write fantasy. Is that, is that the... Is that the is that the is that the question, Matt? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think that's the question. I I do think that Karl Bart has has made a misstep. I don't think that Bart understands Aquinas correctly on this point. I think Karl Bart has made the analogia into some sort of boogeyman, and that's not really what it means. Um, and so, I mean, think about the biblical injunctions: "Be holy as God is holy." So, are we going to say that's just pure equivocation? That would seem that that makes the statement absurd. There's got to be some basis for analogy. That's, that's a whole different that's a whole different discussion. But for but for Tolkien, I mean, he uses this language specifically. I I I don't think that Tolkien is a Thomist, but he is uh, the inheritor of a tradition which is heavily influenced by Thomas and by Thomas's theology of being. And so there's a word that we haven't used yet. We're we're you know, over half one, half an hour into the interview, and this is one of Tolkien's prime theological contributions: is the doctrine of subcreation. So we create because we are made in the image of a creator, and so the analogy of our being is that at the level of essence, human beings are creative agents. 
I, we haven't mentioned it because I, I get kind of tired of it. I'm just not going to lie. You know, it's like Tolkien, sub-creation, catastrophe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, that's all, that's all we know. So, so that's, that's I, I do have a question here when it comes to the authorial analogy. And so I I, I must confess, I, I jumped around in the book. I, I didn't go a, a, a read through. Um, but the Christology section, um, your section exploring what the way he thinks and kind of uh, pops back and forth about thinking about the way an author can or cannot write himself into the story that he is authoring and the way that impacts uh, his his doctrine of incarnation. So I'd, I'd love for you to just kind of tease that out a little bit, um, the, the ways that... Um, because he talks a little bit of like, there, there's always an authorial uh, self-transcendence in the book. Like you can't actually, if you were to write yourself into the story, you can't actually fully mediate yourself into the narrative because of the limits. And yet the incarnation does something different. So Austin, I'd love to just hear a little bit more on that. Yeah. Go, this goes back to the, to the order of being thing that I was talking about. I mean, in this sense, Tolkien inherits from Thomas and from these other medieval thinkers exactly the same sort of thing that Calvin hits on, which is that God's agency and human agency do not operate on the same level. Um, and that there, it is not a zero-sum game between God's activity and, and our activity. Uh, they're two separate axes, if you will. Uh, they're analogous, but not the same. So um, Tolkien uses this uh, analogia auctoris, as, as Kevin Van Hooser labels it, uh, in, in really interesting ways. And I could have, I wanted to say a lot more about it than I could, but one of the methodological limitations that I put on the book is I don't go into my own opinions about what Tolkien does, that the book is, this is what Tolkien thought. I, there, there was a, a criticism on the Tolkien Society the other day from somebody that hadn't read it that said, it sounds like the author doesn't distinguish between his voice and Tolkien's voice. And I said, well, in the introduction to the book, I state very specifically that my voice doesn't come into it. It's all to be understood as Tolkien's voice. Um, so yeah, I, I think that this is a really rich vein of exploration for even um, concepts such as omnipresence. Uh, you know, like where is Tolkien in the story? Well, he, he's nowhere, but he's everywhere in that sense. Um, and or, or when Thomas says, um, or, or, or when other thinkers will say that human agency is enriched the more that God becomes involved in their agency, the more that God grants them the agency, the fuller their freedom is. Well, that makes a lot of sense if we talk about God focusing on one particular character like Frodo and 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 the way that Frodo moves throughout the world and becomes an agent is more powerful because God is or because Tolkien is focusing on that particular character. I, I think there's a ton of resources that um, can come out of this analogy. And it's not like Tolkien is the only one that's that's talking about this. Plenty of other people talk about it. But he he clothes it in uh, imaginative flesh, as it were. And we can see what he's talking about more clearly. Um, and so, yeah, in, in terms of the incarnation specifically, the idea that the author of the story writes himself into the story while remaining also outside of it. I, I think that's probably the best. I'm, I'm going to be, again, provocative here. I think that's probably the best analogy for the incarnation that I can think of. Because, again, why why does Frodo decide to take the ring to Mordor? Well, it's because he makes the decision based on his his developed habits, based on his um, 
character based on the uh, cause and effect chain that that could reach back all the way to the creation of the world, right? So the, there's this idea that Frodo does it because that's who Frodo is. But they're on a different level. There is Tolkien, right? And Frodo takes the ring to Mordor because Tolkien wants him to, because that's the sort of story that Tolkien is writing. So what happens um, if the the characters in Middle Earth want to know not Eru, because of course, you know, let's let's get our subject matter straight here. Eru also is a fictional character um, in in this sense. If they if they don't want to know Eru, what if they want to know Tolkien? What if Frodo wants to know about Tolkien? How would Frodo even know that Tolkien exists? There's no again, there's no causal gap. There's no um, necessary signal anywhere in Middle Earth that it is a created realm. Um, how could there be? Because let's say Frodo wants to walk off the edge of the Middle Earth map. It's not like he's just going to find this big blank space and be like, oh, well, we must be in a fictional universe. No, Tolkien is going to fill out that map as Frodo is going, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And so he'll never come to he'll never come to an area where it, it, it looks to him as if there is another being of a different magnitude, unless that being tells him so himself. There is no natural theological avenue, if we want to use those terms, for Frodo or anybody else to come to know about Tolkien, about their author, unless that author does write himself into the story, unless he descends from his position outside the text into the text itself. And I think that's exactly what Christ does, and that's why it's so essential. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons I'm reformed, right? Is because I place such an emphasis on the self-revelation of of God. So I, I think that the one thing I had was the way you pointed out that the, the thing he had to, to to recognize is that Christ, in assuming humanity, nevertheless there is a fullness of His presence mm -hmm. uh, in a way that uh, that a human author writing himself in is not. In that, mm -hmm. that Christ is fully Christ is fully God, and so I guess that gets in the the question of like the the depth the depth reality of Christ, um, mm -hmm. uh, and the incarnation, you know? Uh, and so that was, that was part of what I was, um, wrestling with, but I don't know if we have enough time to, to keep delving down that vein, um, to keep using the one, the one metaphor. Well, I yeah, know. I mean, uh, Tolkien's not saying anything different than, than Athanasius or Calvin is saying and, and when he's saying that the author transcends the incarnation. He's yeah. just saying that, yeah. that, yeah, that's, that's it. Can I ask about, accounts of nature and creation, and specifically one character about whom I've had many arguments in my day, which is, of course, Tom Bombadil. Who is Tom Bombadil? Uh, <laughs> of course. Every podcast interview I'm on, we talk about Tom Bombadil. Is, is that really yep. true? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So here's here's my take on Tom Bombadil. I'm a little wary. I'm, the metaphysics I'm a little of wary. Tom Bombadil. You know, so Tolkien somewhere describes him as the spirit of the Oxfordshire countryside, I think it is. And that seems that seems lovely and nice and wonderful. But when Tom Bobadil holds the ring, Frodo's a little afraid. Like he Bombadil holds the ring up and looks through it at Frodo, and it's a little terrifying for Frodo. Like he feels fear at Bombadil because Bombadil seems so powerful. He's not affected by the ring in one way, but he also seems irresponsible. He's not invested in the drama in any meaningful sense. He just does his thing. So here's here's the theological question. Is this an account of 
a pure nature and is pure nature ambivalent or is pure nature unmitigatedly good? Or is this an account of nature under conditions of sin? So there you go in three minutes. Okay. Um, the, the short answer is I don't think Tolkien is talking about Bombadil in those categories. Like I, I think if you, if you ask him that question, he might come up with something, but I don't think that was one of his original intentions in doing that. Um, one of the one of the comments he makes about Bombadil is he contrasts Bombadil with the Ents, and he says that Bombadil represents our interaction with nature apart from any use that it might have to us. Um, so Bombadil does not care about like growing tomatoes. Um, that's that's Farmer Maggot. That's the Entwives or somebody else. Bombadil is is the study of botany for its own sake. Um, and so therefore it is independent from, from the concerns of humanity or the possible instrumentalizations that, that human beings might make of nature. Um, yeah, I, again, we can never forget that Lord of the Rings is primarily meant to be a work of fiction and a, a work of, of entertainment. And so, um, Tolkien is not setting out to embody his theology in writing in in the way that that other people might he he's setting out to write this good story and he puts tom bombadil in there because it's a theme that is important to him because it's a story that he told to his kids at other times um because he wants to remind us uh, as dante does that there's always going to be surprises um when we start to try to understand this uh, metaphysics system then all of a sudden uh we see uh, somebody in heaven that's not supposed to be there, right? Um, or we see uh, Cato guarding the slopes of of purgatory. And I think I think Bombadil is one of those people. I think he's one of those people that Tolkien gives to us to say, yes, there's a lot more to this world than is set out here uh, within the bounds of this particular story. I mean, that that's one of the highlights that he gives of why he thinks that the Lord of the Rings is so appealing, because he, he calls it a frameless picture that there's these little hints of further depths or further expanses that are not explored. And I think Tom Bombadil is one of those primary uh, primary examples of that. That's probably the right answer, but it's definitely an unsatisfying one. I'm not going to lie, Austin. <laughs> <laughs> I Yeah, I think about Bombadil so much. I, I, I want him to be more than that, but I, I think you're probably right. That's very wise. Austin, this has been a terrific conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Yes, thank you guys for having me. This has been a conversation about Tolkien dogmatics, theology through mythology with the maker of Middle Earth, brought to you by Lexham Press, the sponsors of the show, and Austin Freeman, who we've been talking with. If you've been listening to this, we are grateful for your time and attention. Shout out to the Merry Band of Patreon supporters. Thanks for all of your support for the show. If you want to join the crew, you can do so at merefidelity.com. If you want to send us an email, we do read it. We, even if we don't respond, you can also do that at merefidelity.com. We're going to be back in the weeks to come with other conversations. I think we're going to talk about gender and is it real next with Abigail Favale, which will be a terrific conversation. Beyond that, we're not sure what's happening, but we have good ideas in the hopper as we always do. This is the podcast where we think together about the word of God and the world we live in. This has been Mere Fidelity. Until next time.